This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Kurt Russo. These correspondences that are telling us, are telling us through her life, through your life, through life. There's something essentially divine about all of this. <laughs> Every bit of it. Every bit of it. I don't have a denominational religion, but I love nature. And I'm willing to take a risk to understand her. Russo is currently the executive director of the indigenous-led nonprofit that is dedicated to the application of ancestral knowledge to reimagine our relationship to the nature of nature. He worked with the Lummi Nation from 1978 to 2020 in the area of sacred sites and treaty rights. He also served as executive director of the Native American Lands Conservancy in California from 1998 to 2016, and was the senior advisor to the Kumie de Gagno Land Conservancy of Southern California. He was the co-founder and executive director of the Florence R. Cluckhone Center for the Study of Values from 1987 to 2002. He has a BS and MS in forestry and a PhD in history. He has worked abroad with indigenous communities in their efforts to preserve their ancestral lands and knowledge in Mexico, Guatemala, Brazil, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Chile. Oh, Kurt. It's so meaningful and special to be speaking with you again. And I know that personally and for our audience, our last conversation together was so impactful. And yeah, it just feels really important to be checking back in with you. So thanks for joining us. Likewise. Oh, goodness. It's hard to know how to begin talking and mourning together for Tokatai. And I just really want to start and focus this conversation in reverence to her. Tokatai, for those of you who don't know her. Uh, she was a Southern resident orca who died at the Miami Seaquarium recently. And our first conversation detailed the fight to bring her home. And now her ashes have been brought back to the Salish Sea where her relatives swim freely. But, oh gosh, clearly this is not the outcome that we, uh, so many of us had hoped for. So I wonder if we can begin with, I know it's a hard question maybe to ask you about your grief, but it feels really at the surface and maybe that's an important place for us to begin. 
It's a it's really a pleasure to be with you again, and it's very uh, difficult at the same time. I want to uh, offer a <clears throat> a prayer. Uh, offered to us by a spiritual leader from the Spirit Dancer Society, and he's a spirit dancer of the Lummi Nation, recently passed away. He had a prayer in moments like this. He would say, when we die, we put our relatives into Mother Earth. And when we get sad <clears throat> for them, we put our hand on the ground and we can feel their heartbeat. And we pick up our drum <clears throat> and we sing to them in the universal tongue of spiritual places where people live and die and are reborn into the creation. I offer that to Skalachaktanat. My hands go out to her relative, Raynell Morris, the elder matriarch of the Lummi effort to bring her home, who did bring her home a couple weeks ago in what to me is a magical, mythical, mysterious correspondence of worlds. So in that vein, I'd like to offer one other thing I think is appropriate to frame the mindset of what we'll talk about and it comes from one of my favorite writers, Roberto Calasso, who wrote in his book of Cadmus and Harmony, he says this, we enter the mythical when we enter the realm of risk. And myth is the enchantment we generate in ourselves at such moments. It is a magical bond that tightens around us. It is a spell the soul casts on itself. We must enchant ourselves. They brought her home. She passed away suddenly in Miami in the hands of, in the hands of those who are caring for her and trying to heal her sparing no effort and no cost. But after 53 years in solitary prison, her body gave up. She was probably within a year of being brought back to her home waters alive. They took her to a place in Georgia. And before she was cremated, her relative Raynell was with her the whole time. And as they put her body in the crematoria, 
Everybody knows that a prayer. Put cedar boughs on her body. And her ashes were brought back in a private jet, landed in Bellingham International Airport a couple weeks ago. Was placed in a stretched white limousine escorted by Bellingham police to the Lummi Reservation. Was taken out into the Salish Sea off the coast of the Lummi Reservation in a Lummi Indian law enforcement boat. Escorted by Lummi fishermen. And as they were making their way out into the Salish Sea, they passed by a part of the reservation where a funeral was going on. There have been a lot of deaths at Lummi. The drug epidemic is intensifying. And they brought the boat to where the people were standing on the shore. They'd come out from the funeral to stand on the shore to honor and raise their hands, Tokatai, hundreds of people with their hands raised. As the London law enforcement boat made a circle, a counterclockwise circle, as they do at funerals, four times. And then they took her out into the Salish Sea, escorted by the United States Coast Guard. And they took her to a secret location where they did deep ceremony, and only Lummi Indians were on the boat. And they said farewell to her relative, put salmon in the water with her. And the Coast Guard guarded the perimeter so that no boat's wakes would disturb her ashes. And so she's back in the Salish Sea. And I asked myself when I heard this, what is that? A police escort, the United States Coast Guard, a funeral, a ceremony, cedar and salmon. It's an orca. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a kualalmachan. It's a kualalmachan. You see, for many people, indigenous peoples of this part of the world, they're not killer whales. I know. I know that's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard. That's why I read that quote from Mr. Colasso. It's risky to step outside what is convenient in how we make our world make sense. However, in the way that we make sense of this particular moment, Kualalmachin have agency parallel and equivalent to and almost identical with human agency. And we fought for her. We fought with everything we had. We almost got her home. But it was too much. 53 years of being in an 80-foot tank, 20 feet deep, filled with chlorine in average of 89-degree weather when you're an orca from the southern residence in the Salish Sea. It's amazing she lived that long. Yeah, she was an ambassador. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In solitary confinement. She sang her song every night of her life in that tank. 
So we feel heartbroken, but committed in her name in honor of her to fight for her relatives. The Scalicia, the Scalicia, Scalicia, Scalicia. So we're fighting for them now. Cecilia does, tribes do, we all are. We just got back from a campaign of three and a half weeks dedicated to the Snake River and taking down the Snake River dams, which unless they bring those dams down, the southern residents will go extinct, period. Period. We will have driven a being that has been here for tens of thousands of years to extinction. So we're fighting for the Snake River dams to come down. And you know what our elected officials say? Well, you know, we have to talk to all the stakeholders. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, One of your best stakeholders is the orcas, and they're going extinct. The rest of them aren't. And we keep talking about them. So the tribes want the dams to come down. You're all welcome to join us if you want. We need your help. We need your help. What can I do? There's a lot you can do. Wow, Kurt. Yeah, you had me in tears and in my mind reaching for some type of, maybe it was reaching for answers, but but really just sitting in the trouble with you. And I am thinking of this memory, the memory that lives in the land and that lives with these relatives that remind us that hopefully and reinvigorate our memory. Like when you're talking about Hokutai still singing her song every night, I guess there's also something about memory and not forgetting. And I, I know this is hard to speak to, but I wonder if you could just share with us a bit more about what Hokutai was experiencing at Miami Seaquarium. I guess there's something inside of me that just, needs to sit with the abuse she was living through because I don't want to forget that either. I think there is a huge, hard, heartbreaking lesson in that. And I know it's a hard thing to ask, but I I do think it's important for us listeners and especially those who didn't hear the first conversation we had of what she was living through and yeah, and honor that for her. Your viewers can actually Google it and experience the painful experience of the capture in 1970 when she was captured as a four-year-old, they think, um, taken out of Penn Cove. The village that Lummi village that was closest to where she was captured was the village of Scalicia. Scalicia was the name of the village. They gave her that name to let her know she's welcome to come home now. She is home now. But she was taken to Miami. Imagine. You're with your family, and then you're being carried on a litter into a tank. 
with another killer whale who would soon be dead, having committed suicide. And then you're alone with two white-sided dolphins that keep lashing your sides. And you swim in a tank 20 feet deep, too shallow to even dive in, 80 feet in diameter. And you go around and around and around in circles so you don't go mad. And you're, you're echolocating, so you're in an echo chamber. All you hear is your own voice bouncing back at you. For 53 years. And yet. And yet. But you know, she died suddenly. And she was seemingly doing really well. And her handlers actually were in the process of um, feeding her live salmon. And she died. Just gone. Gone. And I wonder about that. I wonder if she... I wonder about that. There was no... She was there and then she was gone. I don't pretend to know what that is. But I do know that, you know, when you get, in this case, this close to beings of that nature, you realize something about yourself. We are really in relation with these beings. I'm a diver. I've been in the water with them. I can tell you. There's a there there when you're around them. You feel you're in the presence of a mind. So I think to honor her, and I will always honor her in the work that I do, is to remember what she gave us, how she gave it to us, what she left with us. And really, the fact that she gave it all back with such compassion is an amazing lesson. Why did they say or think she passed? Like, what was the, quote, you know, technical response to that? Kidney failure. Hmm. That's what we're told. 
kidney failure. And, you know, if you were being pumped with that many medications 53 years, your kidneys would fail too. No one understands how she lived as long as she did. I wonder, I'm assuming she knew what was going on. She was about to start getting cradle shrink. She knew what was going on. And she left. I don't understand that. Like, there's something I don't understand there. I think she was tired. I think she's really tired. Renell Morris, a Lummi Indian woman, matriarch elder. But I tell you, when Raynell accompanied her spirit, Raynell said, So when I was with her going from Miami to Georgia, I was with her going from Georgia to Bellingham. I was with her when some Bellingham out on the water. I was with her when I told her, you're okay, we're still with you, don't worry. I was talking to her the whole way. I was with her when we put her ashes in the water, and she said, you know what? We did this ceremony, deep ceremony, one I've never seen. Deep ceremony of relationality. They know something. And she said, she left. She left. Her spirit went into the water and joined her family, and she was good with it. That's what I was told. And I come back to this over and over again. We cannot give up. Indigenous people know something, and among things they know is why we must not give up. It's got nothing to do with science. Nothing. It's got everything to do with correspondence. I wouldn't trade my places with anybody. It is such an honor to work with humility among people with so much honor and so much humility, so much grace, so much knowledge of being with and within nature. It's just simply an honor. Mm -hmm. I agree. And yeah, there's a few questions that came up for me about the Snake River Dams and Tokatai uh, as well. And, and maybe we could go back to Tokatai for a moment. Mm -hmm. So, Kurt, I wanted to uh, talk a bit about the controversy over Tokatai's necropsy and her treatment at Miami Seaquarium and, and just take some time to talk through, yeah, what was happening to her in there. I'm sure you know that she lived in the smallest tank of any sea circus in the United States. It was the smallest. It was the shallowest. But sure, tanks can be bigger, deeper, but these beings are known to cruise 200 miles a day. It comes down to a first principle. Unless we get to the, the first principles, we're just quibbling over details that matter not at all to the basic issue. doesn't matter how big the tank is. These are highly sentient beings. They have agency. They have self-awareness. 
they have intelligence at least as significant and as as real as our own. They just don't belong in those places. Now, she's one case in point. I would argue, and if you look at any of these orcas in captivity, look at their dorsal fin. Look at it. It's droopy. <laughs> it's droopy because they're not healthy. They're supposed to be erect. They're droopy because they are not healthy. They are certainly not happy. And occasionally they, they attack, quote-unquote, their trainers, quote-unquote. Uh, yeah. There is no way you can have an orca in captivity and consider it in any way, shape, or form humane. It just, it's not doable. Whether that applies to other species, that's another open question. But, you know, I think it comes down to what is our relation to and responsibility with nature? What is it? Is it such that we can have these places where you can look at animals that are clearly distressed, but it's a very, China builds a new sea circus every six months, brand new one. They're capturing orcas every day in the high seas. What do we do about it? It's an outstanding question. I don't know, except to be aware, to be aware that if someone says this is for education, it's good to educate people in this way, it is simply not true. There are ways to learn about orcas without putting them in tanks. We uh, at Cecila are trying to create a new way of experiencing that. We're doing a virtual reality program in one of our locations on Friday Harbor. So you will be able to be an orca in the water. You will have the orca experience of being an orca in the water or a salmon. You'll have that experience. And our hope is that by doing that, we can generate new ways of reimagining nature, a responsibility to it, and a relationship with it. We need to come together again. Find a group that shares your vision of a relationship with nature and give them your best gift. And that will be honoring, preserving, passing on the lesson Tokatai. These orca we see and we treasure so much, they live they live in longhouses. Okay, now let's Step into that. In longhouses, you know, an orca scientist told me as we were battling to bring Tokatai home, we only have 3% observational data of the southern resident kilowatts. 3%. 97% of the time, we have no idea where they are. And I said to him, if you only have 3%, how do you know it's 3%? <laughs> It could be much less than that. They don't know where they are. Lummies do. They live in longhouses. There's a deep trench in the Sailor Sea. And in that deep trench, longhouses, in those longhouses, the orca will go. And we've got to take a risk here. 
Raynaud took a risk. Raynaud took a risk. Staying with a relative all the way through. I can't say this about this Tokatai and how through her we see the whole world in a different way. You can see the whole world through a different way of understanding essentially who she is, was, and always will be. We were there, Talakwa, the Talakwa that carried her baby around for 17 days in 2018, touched the world with a magical correspondence that reminds you that there's both something larger than you and that you're never alone at the same time. The godlike moment, you know. That was the year we took that totem pole to Miami, all the way across the country, doing ceremony with that totem pole all the way across the country, that orca pole all the way from Bellingham to Miami, blessed by tribes, many different places, all for her. I want to say one thing about that. I, you pardon me, but was it a bird? Was it a plane? Were they bees? What was this event? It was blessing her pole. Down in California, we asked for a blessing for the, from the Viejas tribe, the Kumeyaays, San Diego County. Wonderful people, extraordinary people. Kumeyaays. We said, we need a blessing for this pole. And we said, okay, bring it to the village. We took it to the village. And in the village, there was a tarp, and under the tarp were the elders. In front of the tribe was the totem pole, and standing in front of the totem pole was the chairman of that tribe. And he said, we're here for a blessing. And he no sooner said that than we heard a plane coming. It sounded like a plane coming right at us. We looked up tens of thousands of honeybees circling out of the sky, coming right down onto the totem pole. Everybody saw it. It was even filmed. And then the elder singing in front of me moved his wrist counterclockwise, and the bees went counterclockwise and would disappear or gone. Later that night, I asked the woman that was guarding the totem pole, Kumihai veteran, I can't sleep. What was that? She said, what was what? I said, this, what happened, Teddy? She said, you wanted the blessing. That was your blessing. What is that? What is she talking about? Supernature. When we finished our event in Miami, 
this moment came to mind today when I was driving. I live in Bellingham, up by Canada. And this morning when I was driving into town, <laughs> there was a rainbow. I mean, a huge rainbow at 7 o'clock in the morning, just lavishing the sky. <laughs> and I thought, supernature. I'm on doing this podcast today. I, I need that hope. I need that promise. And I thought of the drive back from Miami. Doug James, Jewel James, the carvers of that totem pole driving in their big truck. And me and my accompanying car, I was a scout car. I always go with them. And we're in Wyoming. Nobody on the highway but us. Driving side by side, going down the highway and up in the sky. A dark sky at the end of the day, a very threatening sky. On the horizon was a patch of blue sky. Nearly a perfect square. And in that nearly perfect square of blue sky in a dark, darkening, threatening sky was written the word like it was written by someone's finger, L-O-V-E. Everybody saw it, and it did not go away. It hung there for a long time. We pulled over, and the James boys said, Scully, talk to not. He's with us. I say things, things because it's hard because, you know, I've been doing this work for decades, and the more I see and the more I think I understand, the less I know how to say anything about it. These correspondences that are telling us, are telling us through her life, through your life, through life, there's something essentially divine about all of this. <laughs> Every bit of it. Every bit of it. I'm not a religious guy. I don't have a denominational religion. But I love nature. I love nature. And I'm willing to take a risk to understand her. But I don't know that much. So I spend most of my time with people that do. And in my case, those are Native people. They see things. Things show up for them. Skelly Choctanot was a member of the Southern Resident Killer Whales. They are native to the waters that are also the territorial aboriginal waters of the Lummi Indian people. They share those waters. The southern resident killer whales, her family, are on the brink of functional extinction. With 73 left, they're barely hanging on. Most of the southern residents were captured and taken away in the same capture that took place when they took Tokatai in 1970. The southern residents never recovered. How do these criminals get away with this? And I keep asking myself that question. I mean, it, what happened to her was 
criminal. They are criminals. Yeah, they have an amusement park. Okay. Do other things to amuse yourself. Nature is not here for our amusement. Cecilia is an all-indigenous organization, except for me. And at a recent board meeting, they were talking about how to configure right and respectful relations with, with nature. And one of our members, the Yakima, former chairman of Yakima Nation, he said, we are not stewards. Get over that. Nature is our caretaker. We're not in the center of her world. We're part of her world. <laughs> We're not stewards. That hubris is what's got us in this mess to begin with. I know what he's talking about. Right and respectful relations with nature to him means understanding nature is our caretaker for whom and with whom we have a sacred obligation and an ancient covenant, and we are violating it. And you know, nature's very forgiving up to a point. And then she never forgets. We're at that point. I don't know what your listeners, you know, I don't know what their lives are like. Whoever's listening to this, if people listen to it, they have a life, they go on with a life, and after this over, whatever. But you know, we're in trouble. I mean, we, that part of creation, we are making trouble. We brought that up in the fight for token attack. We brought that up to the owners of Miami Seaquarium. They ignored us. Completely. They said, she's an ambassador. To which we responded, you are whoring her out for profit. That's what you're doing. So the tribes want the dams to come down. So we did this journey, our third journey. Let me share something, if I may. One of our board members, the Yakima gentleman, very well thought of in his own ways, very knowledgeable about his own ways, very fluent in his own language. He said to us when we were contemplating do another journey on 2022 up the Snake River, he said, before you go up the Snake River, before you go to do ceremony, before you do that event, I need to go up and we need to honor the spirit of the waters. We'll do this and then you can go on your journey. So he did. With other tribal members, he went all the way from eastern Washington to the Yellowstone Plateau, all the way there where the springs pop out of the ground that give birth to the Snake River. And they did ceremony at each site that represented the baby, the young one, the adult, and the elder. Four ceremonies, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. This is what I'm getting to in terms of what I the quote I started off with. At every single place, they spread a traditional table of food. 
traditional salmon, roots, berries, all of it for the waters. And they waited until the representation came to them that said the spirit of the waters is present. And go ahead. In the first ceremony, in the first representation, they saw a raven standing on the back of a coyote, watching. What is that? Were those bees or a plane? What do you mean long houses in a trench? A raven on the back of a coyote, watching. At every single place, all the way to Astoria on the Pacific Ocean, similar kinds of appearances were preferred by the spirit of the waters to let the people know it was present. You know, I'm going to bore you with one quote here. This comes from a fantastic book by a French anthropologist that spent many, 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 many years with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon. And he wrote this amazing observation, which relates to bees and totem poles. It relates to longhouses and trenches. It relates to love in the sky. It relates to ravens on top of coyotes. And he said, and I quote, In many cases, it is said that an individual of one species apprehends the members of other species in accordance with their own criteria so that in normal conditions, a hunter will not realize that his animal prey sees itself as a human being, or that it sees the hunter as a jaguar. Similarly, a jaguar regards the blood that it drinks as manioc beer, while the monkey spider and the cacique bird thinks it is it is hunting is to a man nothing but a grasshopper. And the tapers that a snake considers as its preferred pay are really human beings. Transubstantiation, transformation. I think the genius, at least of the people that I've had the great honor of coming to know a little bit in this part of the indigenous world, understand the perspective of transformations. And you know, one reason I think they do, they've been here for a very long time. They were here, the Lummi Indians and their relatives and the and the they were here. When where I am now sitting was under three quarters of a mile of ice, and they were here, and they were here when the ice went away. They were here when the first cedar arrived 7,500 years ago. They were here when the orca came and the first salmon found its first stream. They were here, and they've seen all this transformation, and I wonder what is the equivalent European experience of having that kind of place-based identity with the magical transformations, that transubstantial reality that lets you know things are never what they seem to be? And that's really been the essence of the battle for Tokatai, 
he wasn't just an orca, a blackfish or whatever. For Scalicia, they're not orcas either. For salmon, for salmon, for water. I don't know what the answer is. But things I've seen that I come to believe are as real and as true as anything I knew before cannot be explained by the way I make my world make sense. So you got to take this risk. I want one more quote for you. This comes from a Lummi Indian. Lummi Indians are up right here in Whatcom County, out in the San Juan Islands. This is their territory. Lummi Elder, very good friend of the president of Cecilia, said this. The salmon people, the salmon people aren't hardly here no more. We need to talk to them. We need you salmon people, the life givers. You gave up your lives so we can live. It is important for our people about who we really are. We sit in the lap of Mother Earth, learning all there is to learn. Not all at once, but built up over lifetimes every day. We need to keep learning, to never quit learning. Mm-hmm. I am being a bit of a devil's advocate mm-hmm. just because I want to speak to, I don't want to say both sides because I, I don't know if I even believe that, but about the Snake River Dam. So I want to take just a, a moment to recognize how complicated climate change makes decisions like this. Mm-hmm. The Oregon Public Broadcasting reports, quote, hydroelectric dam supporters said climate change is a big reason to keep the dams in place. Yep. The four dams generate carbon-free electricity, which could be helping slow the effect of climate change on warming river and ocean temperatures, end quote. <laughs> so what do we do with information like that? <laughs> how do how do we speak to that when we know that the southern residents, the orcas, will not survive without these dams coming down? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, it's the challenge of our times, isn't it? We're facing some not-so-great choices. Um, but to the issue of the dams and electricity, it wouldn't take much research to... Um, push back on that statement uh, that someone may be making that the lower Snake River dams generate valuable electricity. They don't. They barely generate any electricity. They're not a key. Other dams, there are 60 dams in the Columbia River Basin, of which the lower Snake River are four. We're talking about breaching one. <laughs> and those four dams don't generate. You can, you can look at the research of BPA's own research or the tribe's research. There's lots of it. All say the same thing. They're not that critical. They're not that critical component to generate electricity. What they are crucial for is creating lakes 
So products can move by barge down the Columbia River. It's agriculture. It's not energy. And that is an issue. That is an issue, but it's not an insolvable one. We have, there have been scenarios presented how the product can be moved downriver with barges after breaching the Lower Snake River dams. It's all been laid out. So let me shift the language game a little bit, because what we're doing here is we're entering the frame of reference, which isn't the only one you can look at the issue through. Look, look at the issue through the treaty rights. The basic treaty rights promises made in our name to their ancestors about their right to have their salmon lifeway. That was a written promise. They're not stakeholders. <laughs> Farmers don't have treaties. And I know people don't like to hear it, but these dams are monuments to a stolen landscape. Stolen. The tribes never agreed to these dams. They weren't even consulted. There is a treaty right at issue here. A treaty right to have salmon. The Coeur d'Alene tribe of the upper Columbia River Basin hasn't seen a salmon come up river in decades. They have to truck them in. It was a treaty right. So, yeah, electricity is important. Agriculture, no question. But, hello, we signed a treaty. One last thing. Climate change. A fast-moving river is cooler than a slow one. Taking down the lower Snake River dams will cool the waters, everything downstream be cooled, and the salmon can get upstream to higher elevation to spawn where the waters are cooled. Many hundreds of thousands of acres are now not, now not available. Salmon, otherwise be great habitat, will be made available so they can go further up to spawn. It actually has a climate change component. What I can't figure out in looking at all this is, what is the problem? I mean, why... And you know what I think it comes down to? I know this sounds strange. It comes down to organizational turf. BPA is a country. <laughs> Bondable Power Administration is like the Corps of Engineers. It's a country. And they don't want to run the risk. If they take down these dams, they're afraid all the dams will have to come down. It's not even about the Lower Snake River dams. It's about the precedent. We're in a tough spot. We made some promises. We broke them. We've got to make it right. That river is a slave. It's a slave. It needs to be free.
thank you for saying it like it is. I know you can say there are two sides, and it may well be, but I've read both sides, mm-hmm. or a lot of it. And there are arguments on both sides, just not particularly good ones on the other side. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're there, but you get the feeling they're not really, this isn't really the issue. They're not really telling you what the issue is. Yeah. Because all of the issues they've raised, and one last thing I'll mention to you, mm-hmm. Washington State is 20% Catholic, roughly. Our governor is a Catholic. Our president's a Catholic. Our two senators are Catholics. Just saying. The four leading Catholic bishops of this state have stated with unequivocally the tribes are the primary dialogue partners when it comes to what happens on the snake. They're not stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So how do we hold these organizations accountable like you know maybe the first question is how do we hold miami seaquarium accountable and then of course there's the questions of how we hold the government accountable with the snake river dams yeah yeah good point maybe we could start with miami seaquarium because i i think that it's so easy to sweep this under the rug as more media comes out and people get distracted by other things. And then all of a sudden Miami Seaquarium is just forgotten, continuing to do their, the horrors that they do. So how can we keep up the fight with them particularly? And maybe then we can go into um, the other organizations that are holding back the healing of the Salish Sea. That's a very good question. And there are groups and individuals. The Lummi tribe is not currently one of them. But there are groups of individuals and organizations that are continue to bring attention to the fact Miami Sea Aquarium ought to just be shut down. It's it's terrible. It's awful there for anything living there. It's not well kept. It's not well funded. It's basically in decline, and it's not being well cared for. So there is that. And some organizations, I don't know. I know PETA is one. There are several others that have their eyeballs set squarely on Miami Sea Aquarium. Our side of the fight with the tribe we're not currently engaged in that. We're now engaged in the bigger question of the of her family um, and the orca and the salmon. So what I would suggest, if people want to know how they could get involved in making their voices heard about Miami Seaquarium, there are two places to go. One is PETA, P-E-T-A is the, is the initials. And the other is Orca Network, Orca Network. And if one wanted to know how you can make your voice heard all the way to Miami Seaquarium, those two organizations can help you. The dams, at the end of this month, supposedly, a decision will be forthcoming among the various litigants about a solution to breaching the lower Snake River dams. The Biden administration has been really good on this one. They're really pushing for a good solution. And so all of the litigants have put the case on pause, the legal case, hoping the parties can come to a decision. We'll know at the end of the month what that will be. Whether it will be taking the dams down now, later, or ever. And at the end of the month, we'll know. Earth justice. Earth justice is the main legal beagle right now on that fight. The Nez Perce tribe is doing a big event at the in November 
the Unity event about Orcas, Salmon, and the Dams. They're doing a big event in Everett, Washington. Tribes, NGOs, everybody. If someone in this area would like to attend that, they are certainly go, welcome to go to that and see where they can get involved. They just go to the Nez Perce, N-E-Z Perce, P-E-R-C-E tribe, and you'll see reference to that event. We're waiting right now to see what happens at the end of the month. But most of your listeners, I'm sure, have a skill or two or three that a local tribe, by that I mean somewhere in your state, in your local area, in your county, there is a tribe you can work with. And if you come to know their relation with nature, it will give you inspiration, reimagination, and give you hope. They never give up hope. Imagine what they've been through. That's what I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's good to know about those events. Oh, yeah. And um, as we begin to conclude, I I think that question of maybe we call it the dark forces. Not that we'll be able to <laughs> understand it or figure it out in this conversation or maybe our entire lives, but there is some type of spiritual warfare happening. And it, and the extermination of indigenous people makes sense in that design because if you want to disconnect from nature and relationality then you want to get rid of any energy that has that type of power to connect back because it is such a powerful force so why would you want that around if the force that you're working with is about really uh, extermination of all living things where that comes from i don't understand i i I think it's maddening that we we and whoever we're talking about the ones who are totally (laughs) encaptured or enraptured and and captured by the dark forces that i don't understand why those people would even agree to ecocide. It doesn't, it doesn't rationally make sense. Why would anybody think that killing the earth is a good idea for what, for commodity, but why? I mean, we, we know what it equals. It equals death. So it it's very much even against the survival mechanism inside ourselves, that innate survival mechanism. Well, that's the point. Yeah. I mean, late state capitalism yeah. has a death wish. And it's imposing itself on humanity. Mm-hmm. But to one last thing you were saying, it's not, I don't think, in my opinion, and I, it's not original with me, but it's not really a them. <laughs> it's an it. <laughs> and it is this place in history, and it moves like a lava lamp. It just reshapes itself based on sort of the atmosphere of history is the relationship between power and knowledge. And there's a nexus where they meet. And the nexus where they meet is what enchants its era. This particular one is a dark one because the power and the knowledge are both utilitarian, rationalistic, and materialistic. Any ideas on the origin of 
the dark forces, the ecocidal tendencies? Well, I I may offend some of your listeners. <laughs> Great. Let's hear it. Christianity. Bottom line. Is the dark force of the last 1700 years. And I'm going to I'm going to ask beyond that, but where why? Where did it come from before that? Where how was it created? Why was it created? Boy, that's a good question. I mean, I don't see it in evidence. When I enter the world of, for example, the Mediterranean of 800 BC, I don't see it there. I see it show up sometime around Rome. This attitude of machine and mastery, engineering and technique, And then they spread it everywhere. Everywhere. Think of all the great things nuclear energy is going to bring. Oh, my God, the Internet's going to be our salvation. No. It doesn't help us. It doesn't really help the human flourishing. I don't think cultivating human flourishing has been a thing for 3,000 years. It just hasn't been the thing. And we're at, we're at one particular, either the end of an epic or the beginning of one. We've taken this version, world version of it as far as we can without destroying ourselves. I think what everyone must be asking themselves is so, I think most people know, most people have a sense something is terribly wrong. They may act out that feeling differently, but they know it. They know something's wrong, but they feel powerless to either understand it or do anything about it. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Well, Kurt, thanks for diving into those deep inquiries near the... I do hope your listeners, mm-hmm. you have a great show, by the way. It's, it's so good you've got your show because it's so, it's so hopeful and helpful. Mm. But I just have to implore your your tribe mm-hmm. fight for us fight for nature stand with her don't give up on her do what you can do now mm. yes thank you for those words they'll they'll stay with me Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild. The music you heard today is by Julius Smack and Francesca Hart, courtesy of the Leaving Records record label. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Julia Jackson, Erica Ekram, Bailey Bigger, Jackson Krupp, Evan Tenenbaum, and Jose Alejandro Rivera.